God's uh, word comes to us from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Therefore, hold fast and repent to what you have received and what you have heard. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you do not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Those who are victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will not blot their names out of the book of life and will acknowledge their names before my Father and his angels. The one who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Last week, we went to the New York City of Asia Minor, Ephesus. Today, we go to Chicago. It's called Sardis. And if you look at uh, this map on the screen, on the far left is the Aegean Sea. And if you go in the lower third of the map, you might be able to pick out Ephesus. If you go on a line uh, north and slightly east, you will run into Sardis. One of the things about the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation is they're all on the same road. They're all part of what was known as the Royal Road. It is a road that uh, would stretch from Asia Minor on our map all the way east to uh, Persia, Assyria, uh, Babylonia, would go south a branch of it uh, through Israel along the Mediterranean, would go on into Egypt and then to Arabia, uh, connecting the world with trade and spice routes. One of the interesting things that the Romans did for the gospel is they paved 57,000 miles of roads that Paul and other disciples would travel spreading the word of God. And Sarvis is along one of those major roads. As we look to the next uh, slide, this is a picture of uh, the Acropolis, a part of the Acropolis of Sardis. It's the ruin in the middle of the picture. The problem is uh, cities were usually built. There was an upper city, an Acropolis, and a lower city. But a great earthquake hit Asia Minor in 17 AD. The historian uh, Pliny said it was the greatest earthquake ever seen by human beings. And in this great earthquake, this two-part city, the upper city and the lower city, actually ended up in three parts. Uh, the Acropolis had been 28 acres. Scholars believe it got reduced to five. And actually, what you see, the ruin in the middle there, has rolled down and has come down or shifted uh, from a much higher point that we'll see later. And so Sardis actually ended up in three parts. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, it says there was a great earthquake such as humans had never seen before, and the great city split into three parts. People would understand that. They had seen that in Asia Minor. Sardis was famous for gold. Uh, a guy named Croesus, you may have heard the phrase richest Croesus, had discovered gold in the Pactolus River. It was also uh, famous for uh, vineyards, for wine, and for the dye-making um, industry. But uh, one of the interesting things is that if you uh, go down in kind of a valley and you look at the hill, which is off to your right in the picture, 
and then look at this hill that we're standing on right now. If I brought you into like a valley between the two, blindfolded you, spun you around 20 times, and I then took off the blindfold, you wouldn't be sure which was which. You wouldn't be sure at a distance which is the middle city that had been created by the earthquake and which is this other hill, which is not a city at all. It is a necropolis. There are half a million people buried in that hill, according to scholars. But from a distance, to the slightly disoriented, they look the same. And here's what Jesus said. I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You look like... This hill right here, but you're really that other hill. Another interesting thing that Jesus points to in the letter comes from the history of Sardis. Because the Acropolis was on such high ground, it was very easily defendable. It was a very formidable uh, fortress, and most people um, wouldn't even bother to try to take the city. But the Persians under Cyrus did try to take the city. And as they laid siege to the Acropolis of Sardis, an interesting thing happened. Uh, One evening toward dusk, Uh, A soldier of the um, Persians is watching uh, soldiers from uh, Sardis frolicking or whatever, and one of them loses his helmet. And he watches a while and sees suddenly down below that same soldier emerge, pick up his helmet, disappear again, and end up back on the top of the fortress on the Acropolis. The soldier rightly reasoned there must be some secret gate. There must be some secret way into the city that you don't have to make your way up that hill. And so he went back, told his commander, they sent out a special forces unit that night. They found the secret gate. They got their soldiers. They gathered around, and by morning, Croesus' kingdom lay in shambles. Same thing was almost repeated exactly 200 years later. The Greeks, uh, descendants of uh, Alexander the Great, are laying siege to Sardis, to the Acropolis, and they're not having much success. But one of their soldiers is watching one of the walls, and he notices that buzzards are sitting on the wall. And uh, what happens is that the buzzards are waiting for animals that, are, that have died in the fortified city, and they kind of throw them uh, overboard um, and uh, into the ravine. And then the buzzards go and pick up the carcasses. But the soldier rightly reasons that buzzards would never sit on a wall if there were soldiers there. There wouldn't, couldn't be people in that, in that area. So the soldier goes back and says, I think we found an undefended part of the wall on that Acropolis. And at night, forces gather, they go to that wall, they take the wall, and by the morning, the kingdom has fallen to the Greeks. Listen to what Jesus said. If you do not repent, I will come like a thief, and you do not know at what time I will come to you. Twice in their history, they thought they were impregnable. They thought they had it all together. And they had fallen during the dark of the night. So that's some of the history of uh, Sardis. Now we're going to go from the middle city down to the lower city. Uh, This is a picture of a dive vat in a shop uh, alongside the road. The Royal Road, scholars estimate, uh, estimate, had traffic of 15 to 20 million people or more annually would walk down this road. One side of the road has not been excavated, but Harvard University has excavated this side of the road. Uh, So far, they have found 21 shops along that side of the road. This is one of the 21, and if you look at the dive vat in the middle, it's a little bit covered by the shade. You will see the cross. What they have found is simply astounding. 21 shops found on this side of the road that's been excavated. 11 have Christian symbols in them. Six 
have Jewish and Christian symbols in them. Fred, if you'll go to the next slide, you can't see this well, but on the next slide, this is one that has both a menorah and a cross in it. It's a restaurant. And then there were two that had menorahs. 19 of the 21 shops clearly identified themselves to passers-by what they believed about God. Now, that might seem interesting to you, but you need to remember that when the book of Revelation was written to churches like in places like Sardis, it was illegal upon penalty of death or being sold into slavery to not worship Caesar, to worship anyone but Caesar. So these people are putting their lives on the line for 15 to 20 million folks who will walk by every year. That's in, uh, in the lower city. It's also in the lower city. This is one of the largest gymnasiums. And if you remember last week, gymnasium doesn't mean like where they play basketball. Gymnasius uh, means where they study and they develop their mind and their body. This is the University of uh, Sardis, in a sense. And the big uh, green area is called the palestra, the largest palestra they found with any gymnasium in the Greco-Roman world. It's about five acres. And so you would come like you would go to the gym and you would exercise, only you would do it in the nude. And then you would pass through those buildings, and on the other side, you would then exercise your mind, also in the nude. And then after a hard day of study and exercise, you could engage in, in, uh, in, in a bath, in a Roman, famous Roman bath, which was mixed bathing, also in the nude. So right here, in front of all the Jews and Christians of Sardis, is a way of life, clearly antithetical to everything that they've been taught to believe about God, and it's right there in their face. Now, what's the tuition at this university? If you'll uh, move ahead, Fred. This is closer up the building. If you see the indentation between the columns just above the opening, that's called an apse. And um, Harvard uh, didn't get this piece. Somebody else got the piece and hauled it off, I think, to a a museum in, in Berlin or London. But in that apse was the figure that you were to worship to go through the doors. And the figure there was the divine Caesar. And so before you could study at the university, you had to say, I pledge my allegiance to you, God of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. And then you could enter the school. Now, I had one go to Texas Tech, and I had one go to the University of Texas, and and I don't think either of them had to bow to Caesar uh, to go in. But you wonder what kind of compromises the university calls on of its students, what they have to buy into in order to participate in, in, the, in the academic life. And it's a, I think it's still a very live question today because their way of truth, the Greco-Woman way of truth, was to say that human beings are the measure of all things. What is true is what we decide is true, what we name is true. And if we can't decide, we'll take a vote, and what the majority says is true is true. Now, for the, those who are Jewish and Christians, Truth is what God says is truth. And truth is not something just you apprehend through the logic of your mind, but truth is revealed in a relationship uh, with God. It's two completely different ways of seeing the world and seeing truth. And so that makes this very fascinating. If you look at the next slide, this is right next to the largest palestra in the Greco and Roman world, right on the campus, if you will, of Sardis University. This is a synagogue. This is a synagogue right where they said what is true is what we say is true. It is a place where people worshipped and said what is true is what God says is true. And there they were. Now, the first um, group of archaeologists from Harvard, they thought these people were sellouts. 
that they somehow compromised their faith and values to build their synagogue in a place where nude bodies were walking back and forth all day long to study in the university. And they assumed that they probably were going to the synagogue from their university and back and forth. But later researchers have come up with an entirely different conclusion. They believe that what they have done is they have planted uh, their synagogue right in the middle of the university to say, that is not true, this is what is true. And if you look at our lives compared to their lives, you will see truth will be known in the lives of the people who adhere to that truth. So it was actually a way, if we can go back to the children's sermon, of putting on their duck hunting clothes and getting in waist deep and say, we are going to confront the world of academic um, uh, training based on humans are the measure of all things with what we have learned in God. But that's not the worst part of being in Sardis. If you go across the street where it's not excavated, go around the corner and uh, walk for a while, you will come to the temple of Artemis. Now, Artemis in, in the Greco-Roman Roman world was you know, okay as goddesses, gods and goddesses go. She was chaste, virginal, goddess of the hunt, um, Uh, But when she came to Asia Minor and met the local fertility goddess of uh, the people of Asia Minor, bad things happened. And if you'll pardon me this morning, I'll just give it to you straight from the scholars. When when Artemis met Kibbola, when the two deities came together, she became a slut. And basically, Artemis Kibbola became the goddess of debauchery. And she was worshipped in a two-week festival every week where people were in drunken orgy for two weeks straight. Think of all the spring breaks you've seen and heard about. Roll them together. They do not touch what happens annually in Sardis. For this is how you worship the fertility goddess is through fertility uh, rites. And her name is Kibbola, and she's especially disgusting, and what she wants uh, from people is especially disgusting. The myth of Kippola then is perpetrated by the faith and retold by the uh, faithful followers. The myth is this. Addis falls in love with Kippola. Addis is much younger, some say a grandchild. Um, Addis' love for Kippola is not returned. So in his grief over unrequited love, he takes uh, a sword and emasculates himself. The blood that drips from his body falls into the ground, and the tree of life, some believe, in fact, most believe a pine tree, emerges. And so the local myth was, if we will mutilate ourselves and shed blood, that will bring fertility and health and blessing for the whole community. So what you have is two weeks of drunken orgy, and then the most spiritual of the Kibbola followers, the men, get to the front of the line. And when they have made it here to the front of the temple, as their act their final act of worship, they will mutilate themselves for the benefit of the community so that fertility will be spread. And the greatest honor and blessing is for those who have the best seats on the parade route because their goal is to be covered with the blood of those who have mutilated themselves and then it will bring blessing and fertility to their family. Is it any wonder that Jesus looked at Sardis and said, yet you have a few people who have not soiled their clothes. People fighting with each other to be covered in the blood that has come from people participating in drunken mutilations. But stay with me. I don't have a picture of this, but if you go around the corner from that temple, it's a small enclosure 
30 feet wide, 45 feet long. Not very big at all. Scholars have found out that is a very primitive church building. They built it on the grounds of the Kibbeh Temple. And what they did, according to scholars, was they took care of people who had mutilated themselves. These people who for weeks and in fact their whole life have flaunted everything that Christians believe about God and have participated in terrible acts when they came to pay the price for their terrible acts. The Christians were there to bind their wounds and to take care of them. No one else did. The church, if we can use the analogy, had put on their clothes and they were waiting now, not just knee deep, but they were neck deep in the pain, sin, and suffering of the world. And that's where they built their first little temporary building. Well, as we go to the next picture, when you get ready to leave, there's a, a, a couple-hour climb that will take you to the old Acropolis. And you can look over the city, and, and you look down in these very impressive columns and these uh, impressive university. You can't even make out from the top of the Acropolis. And the rabbis would often take students on that difficult climb to tell them, this is what the, all this power looks like to God. The biggest thing they can build, the most might they can gather together, and, Bob, and God looks at that and says, I'm not even going to bother. There's more power in my pinky finger than they have together in their entire army. And so they would get God's perspective. But as we leave, I want to give you a different perspective. I think that's a wonderful one. When you look down on the city below, I want you to see this. I want you to see shopkeepers who risked their life to advertise their faith on the main highway where anyone could have turned them in. I want you to see a synagogue that dared to say to the university, you do not have the truth because truth is in a person. I want you to see a church that set up its headquarters right in the center of Satan Central. History tells us that of the 12 disciples, Judas didn't quite make it. James was killed early on, so 10 were left. And five of them came to Asia Minor. There was Philip and John and Peter and Andrew and Thaddeus. But as far as we know, none of them ever established themselves in Sardis. None of them ever had a revival. None of them ever started a ministry to people in the community. None of them ever said, well, I'll preach a sermon series every night for several weeks. As far as we know, none of that happened. But within 125 years, this pagan group worshiping the most disgusting of goddesses had become almost entirely Christian. No real buildings, no major programs, no great preachers. They simply lived their faith out in the middle of the community. And people saw it. And they caught it. And the faith caught on. What would San Antonio be like in 25 years or, or 50 or 75 if you and I went out in the middle of this community and lived our faith openly?